Hello and welcome to the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day with a podcast about some of the ideas that will be up in the air and up for discussion at the 2017 Global Peter Drucker Forum in Vienna in November. And this year's theme, a highly topical one, growth and inclusive prosperity. With me is one of the regular forum participants, Tammy Erickson, the author, professor at the London Business School and expert on leadership and work. She's based in the countryside near Boston, Massachusetts. Her company, Tammy Erickson Associates, helps businesses build intelligent organizations. And it's hard, isn't it? It is hard because it's such a dramatic change from the kinds of organizations we've built in the past. And they worked, didn't they? The 20th Century Corporation was wonderfully effective. For what it was designed to do, which was, in my shorthand, to do quality, quantity, and cost. If I said to you, design an organization that gives me quality, quantity, and cost, I don't think you could do anything better than what we had in the 20th century. They were right back, Right back to Henry Ford. Absolutely back to Henry Ford. Really brilliant ideas. But, but, but. But, but, but. None of that will make you what I would like to say iconic in this century. You're not going to stand out as a company if all you can do is quantity, quality, and cost. This is a century where you're going to have to be able to come up with new ideas and instant ideas, sense what's happening around, respond. Those are very different kinds of skills than the kind of skills Ford designed an organization to do. And they're still at the moment human attributes, those skills, rather than machine ones, aren't they? It's not about getting into the flow of the production line. It's something quite different. It really is. It has to do with the relationship, the connection, the ability to intuit what a small signal might mean. Very human skills. But you have to lead, help, encourage organizations to realize that things have changed. They don't have the antennae themselves to sense it, do they? They're still trapped in the 20th century model, are they? Most are, and understandably so, because we fall into these patterns and habits. We've always done it that way. I love to ask people, well, why are you doing that? Well, because we always have. And because we've spent a lot of money on machinery, plant, capacity, training, all those things, capital costs, which are embedded in what we do. And that's an important component of the 20th century organization. It is, the costs embedded, but even around some notions and ideas, like, for example, tenure. If I say to most companies, you know, are you using tenure as part of your employment practice? They look at me almost like I'm crazy. Well, of course we are. Why? Why is tenure an important factor? Why are you worried about that? Why are you worried about turnover? Because I can make arguments that those kinds of things have far less importance today than they did in a Ford era. Well, tenure, staying with a company for... Your working life obviously doesn't really exist anymore, does it? Well, one, it doesn't exist. It's a false concept. But two, I'm not sure you want it to exist. If I were an investor in your organization, I'd want to know that you had people who were fit for purpose. Not that you had somebody who'd stuck around for 30 years and had been mediocre at what you'd asked them to do. 
I really want to know how good they are. But that shifts the question to what the organization I am part of actually is. If it doesn't have the corporate culture that I come in, learn the ropes, and then become part of that organization, contribute my culture to its culture. If I am a team worker working on a project, say, and then I can look at my watch and expect to be out of this in two years' time, what's the organization that I'm temporarily part of then? It's changed its nature completely, hasn't it? Well, it does change a bit, but again, now I'm somebody who grew up and spent 20 years in consulting. And so as a consultant, I was continually working with a different client at different periods of time. I would tell you, I got very committed to the organizations who were my major clients. I felt like I was part of them. So I don't think you have to have in your head that you're going to be there for 30 years in order to feel an emotional connection. I can come in and do a project with you for a year or two years and feel very committed to the culture of your organization. But you've just given me a very specific answer around the consultant point of view of what a corporation is. I would say, having worked for one organization for 42 years, that um, that's a completely different thing you're offering. When you offer a freelance, effectively, a job on a project to get something to the market over two or three years... That's a different sort of work from the work I experienced over 42 years for one organization, isn't it? A very different one. And the mindset is different, the psychology is different, the motivation is different, isn't it? Yes, they're all different. And I would say both a combination of, I don't think that the 42-year opportunity exists for very many people anymore, nor do I think from a corporate point of view that it should. In other words, I think there are very few roles in a corporation today that really require 42 years' worth of experience to do well. Now, that's not to say that someone with 42 years of experience doesn't do marvelous things, but it may not be for the organization they started out with. So we need new kinds of people, and everybody says that, new kind of flexibility, portfolio, careers, those sort of things. But we also need new kinds of organizations and new kinds of leadership. We do. So from an organizational standpoint, I think that organizations will be comprised of a fewer number of full-time employees. I do think they still need to have some, but they'll have a much larger number, actually, of kind of family members, I guess you could say, people who are in their work community, people who, for example, would have been vetted and and perhaps even have contracts in place so that they could be tapped on an as-needed basis. Now, from a leadership perspective, that's completely changed. And one of the fun things about the work that I do is that if you look at old literature about leadership, it really says some kind of astonishing things. I mean, it talks about people who have to be particularly perceptive and brilliant because they're coming up with the ideas. They have to be charismatic because they're getting everyone to follow and buy into those ideas. There's even literature that talks about having to be tall or even certain shaped earlobes. And my answer is always, boy, if those were what the things you needed today, I can't help. I've got nothing on those. But I don't think that is what leadership is about. What is it about then? (laughs) Well, I like to say it's about creating context. So leaders today have to think about themselves 
a little bit like the person behind the curtain. In other words, are they creating an environment where lots of people can participate effectively, where people will be feel like adults and able to make intelligent contributions to that organization. So it has more to do with shaping an environment than it is necessarily telling people what to do, leading them in a particular direction. But you still need purpose, and the purpose may change over time, so you still need people who can articulate both the purpose of the organization and then the changes that you need to either keep that purpose going or veer away from it and do something completely different. You still need that, don't you? You do, absolutely. You need purpose and questions. Those are the two things that I would say. So you need to have a purpose. Our, our purpose is to be able to serve this particular client base or whatever with these kinds of products. But then you need questions that are really interesting to ask people because you no longer can tell them exactly how to do it. Well, Andy Grove, the late chairman of Intel, wrote that book called Only the Paranoid Survive, which is another way of saying you need very intense questions indeed about the whole purpose and structure of what you think you are doing all the time, because just when everything in the garden is wonderful, that's when somebody's going to come along and eat your lunch. Isn't that the truth? And so that ability to be open to those disruptive forces is another critical element, I think, of being a leader today. If you don't understand what your own blinders are and how you are likely to miss, what signals are you likely to miss because of your own perceptual biases? Probably success. Success is a great blinder, isn't it? Only the paranoid survive because... Everything in the garden is lovely. We know we are doing well, and our shareholders tell us, and our customers tell us, nothing can happen to us. Oh, my goodness, yes, it can. That's right. It's always worked. So let's just carry forward. That's a huge danger to be in. Now, the 21st century adds something to this awareness, this antennae out, this questioning, and that is data, the most enormous amounts of data suddenly flooding in, dazzling people with um, what they might be able to learn about absolutely everything in the organization they run and the world they're trying to serve. It's, um, that's a great big upsetting element to the whole thing, isn't it? It is. Um, and of course, we have, we're getting smarter about it through our use of uh, artificial intelligence, for example, to help us filter through it. But one of the things that I study a lot is the question of how does collaboration occur effectively within organizations. And a mistake that companies have been made to oversimplify it is to think, well, we want to generate as much collaboration as possible. That's actually ridiculous. You want to get as smart of collaboration as possible. In other words, I want you to filter out what you're going to share with me. I want you to think hard and don't just send everything in my direction. Well, collaboration has, has, has affected the physical layout of organizations and companies, so the far more meeting places and coffee bars and that kind of thing. This is just generating conversation or maybe wasting time. How do you focus the collaboration on things that matter? How does that emerge from this network of keenness that's going on? Well, that's a really important point. In fact, what we've found is people don't truly collaborate, at least in the way we would define it academically, unless there's an important and challenging problem. 
So you, you basically focus it through the kinds of important and challenging problems that you pose or the kinds of questions that you ask. So I'm not going to spend my time in true collaboration if I know the answer, because then it's not challenging, or if it's not important, because then I'll just take a guess. But who articulates that important problem? We're getting back to the leader, aren't we? And the leader has come up very likely through the organization he or she now leads or something very similar. So how do you generate the the very important problem that we need to switch the attention of an awful lot of people working for this organization to? Well, there again, I hate to put it all on the shoulders of one individual. So I'm a huge believer in the ability of groups to come up with some of those interesting questions. And, of course, there are many new tools for doing that. But the whole data question that you bring about is such an important part of thinking about the future of work. I get fascinated by the technology that we have available. And not so much the specific technology, but the way it changes some of the key elements, like the cost of communication, You may be familiar with the work of uh, Ronald Coase, who wrote back in the 1930s about the relationship between the cost of communication and the scope of a company, the number of activities a company would take on. Well, he basically predicted that as cost of communication fell, the scope would narrow. We would have to own fewer things. And we saw that in the 1980s when companies began to spin off a number of activities, outsource, etc. Well, here we are again. The cost of communication has plummeted in the last decade. Companies haven't yet begun to spin some more things off. What are they going to spin off next? And my answer in part is people. So they will begin to feel the need to have fewer full-time employees. And I was thinking when you were talking about the kinds of people that an organization will need in the future, maybe on short-term or very defined contracts, maybe just to do a particular project, that you might be talking about contributory organizations as well, little firms, not just individuals, working for the, uh, uh, the mothership, so to speak. Yes, absolutely. So there's a, there's a new kind of organization, which is the con, a small consultancy or a group of people in a workshop or something getting together to service a great big business. Right. I think we'll see some of that. Let me give you another example, though, that will go hand in hand with this. Think about if someone our age wanted to get together for a meeting. We would create a plan. We would think in advance. We'd set a date, we'd place, we'd schedule, etc. That's how we do things. But if you watch young people today, they do much less of that. Not that they don't do it occasionally, but for many of their activities, they do it in real time. They just simply send out a note and say, you know, essentially, is anybody free for lunch right now? And they get together through much more of an instantaneous coordination activity. So they may not need formal frameworks, I was suggesting little companies, but they may not need that. They may just get together to get this thing done. 
They may, right. And so think about the advantages of those two approaches. So if you and I made a plan, we would have the advantage of knowing exactly with whom we were going to meet. It would be the precise person. We could do it at a precise time, etc. For them, one of the advantages would be convenience and economics, because probably the person wouldn't have to commute to get there. They'd pick the person who was right around the corner. That kind of thinking will come into the processes of our corporations. So for some things, we'll still see companies wanting to either own it or plan for it far in advance because the resource is so special, so specific, we definitely want it. And for many other things, well, we'll kind of Uberize them. We'll decide, you know, we just want people who can do this right now. Who's around? Who can come in today and do this particular activity? So we'll see much more of that spontaneous coordination coming into corporate processes. The psychology of that is difficult, though, if you've grown up in conventional hierarchical organization, isn't it? It is, but again, if I talk to somebody who's in their uh, 60s or 70s about security, let's take that as a word, how do you get secure? Most people in their 60s and 70s would talk about being loyal to an organization and, and paying their dues and building up a pension, etc. If I spoke to a 20-year-old uh, and described a lifetime of working for one company for 40 years, they would, I think, feel a great sense of insecurity. In fact, for them, the idea of working for four or five companies feels more secure because they're learning more skills, they have options, they have backup plans, they have multiple contacts. And so they still want this kind of security, but they get it through different means. But, 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 working for somebody like Uber is turning out to be very insecure indeed. There's quite a lot of the characteristics of an old sort of family-run barony company about some of the new Silicon Valley service companies, isn't there? There is. And so one of the really important questions, I think, that we need to tackle this fall at the Drucker Forum is the relative role of business versus society in these kinds of questions. I have the luxury, being a professor, to put my hat on, if you will, and think what would be the most advantageous way for a corporation to operate. But I understand there's a broader question of what are the implications for our society, for people as a whole. And that's a question that we all have to hold hands to wrestle with. I personally don't think the answer is to dump the burden back on corporations and to say you have to operate in a less efficient way because part of what you have to do is care for the long-term health and well-being of human beings in addition to running your business effectively, personally. But you may. And so that's a debate that I think each society needs to have. Of course, I have to intrude into this particular bit of the conversation, the robot, the rise of the robot, which is going to put an awful lot of people out of work. And society as a whole is going to be reshaped by that because of the attack on work, the conventional work patterns we've had for more than 100 years. And that's a very serious unknown, isn't it? 
It is. And you can hear people all over the spectrum in terms of their predictions. I've heard people make very convincing speeches that robots will actually generate jobs because of the opportunities that will be opened up. For example, robots will almost certainly take over many of the roles in medicine. Already today, the best cancer doctor are computers. And so on one hand, it limits the role of humans. On the other, it enables us to provide medical services to a much broader spectrum of the world's population than we ever have before. And in doing so, we open up alternative roles for humans as those services roll around the world. AI, robots, will take over much of law and accounting and medicine and teaching, as well as many of the traditional industrial jobs. Well, the Indian-born venture capitalist Vinod Kosler told me in Silicon Valley two or three years ago that he expected in 20 years' time, because of the rise of robot medicine or artificial intelligent medicine, that India would have a far better medical system than the USA because it was starting from such a low base in the first place, that the new technologies could be applied so much more readily in a sprawling country like that than it could be to an embedded establishment of medical practitioners, the USA. That's certainly a very valid point. I mean, we've seen that, for example, in uh, the financial service industry already, as new financial service technologies have spread much more easily in uh, less developed countries than they have in some of our more developed nations. Bring Professor Peter Drucker into this, please. The forums named after him 13 years after his death. Are his ideas still useful? Of course, I'm a huge fan, and I actually had the pleasure of knowing him, so I feel very lucky to be part of the Drucker Forum. One of the things that Peter Drucker predicted, just a highlight that shows how spot on he was, I think, to some of these trends, he predicted that the role of human resources within organizations would be dramatically different, that it would be much more like an agency in the film or television industry because companies would want to pull together casts, if you will, every time they wanted to do a project, and that human resources should begin to think of themselves more like casting agents than people who are overseeing some fixed pool of employees. He said that 15, 20 years ago. So he already had this vision of a portfolio career and portfolio corporations and all of these kinds of things. Many thanks to Tammy Erickson, professor at the London Business School, CEO of Tammy Erickson Associates, one of the people who will be speaking at the ninth annual Global Peter Drucker Forum in Vienna in November. More podcasts coming up soon.